0: We're in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, the gracious credentials of the king. We're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus. Last week, if you were with us, we did one verse as we introduced the concept of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. I would highly recommend if you did not hear that message, you were not here for that, go back and listen to it. Because it is a very important foundation for the book that we are studying now, which is the first New Testament book, moving verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. So let's turn over there. We've entitled this The Gracious Credentials of the King. You could call this a good news genealogy. What is a genealogy, you might ask? A genealogy is a family tree. And the family tree of the Messiah is before us in the book of Matthew. Last night, my wife and I had the privilege of going to Disneyland. I should say, sort of a privilege. <clears throat> because as we've gotten older, uh, we found ourselves on a Saturday at Disneyland dodging strollers, uh, bumping into people we've never met before, but now, know on a first-name basis. <laughs> uh, I think the nicest time that we had was we finally darted into a little place where we could have a cup of coffee and we are just watching people go back and forth and we're like, Disneyland. <laughs> Who would want to go to this place on a Saturday? Now you might say, well, Pastor Michael, why were you there? Well, so there's a precious couple in our fellowship and uh, some of you know Dave Richards. Dave Richards has been battling cancer. Dave and Marilyn and a wonderful family. And so Dave's worked at Disneyland, worked as a police officer in security, and he's been wanting to invite us to something that Disney does at the park once a year, and it's called the Candlelight Ceremony. How many of you have seen this before? Raise up your hand. Okay, a handful of you. So from the beginning, my understanding from the beginning, when the park opened, Walt had uh, something he wanted done. And what they do is they have this incredible choir Uh, hundreds and hundreds of people in the choir from high schools, uh, uh, choral groups, churches. They all come together. They had some special singers, and they follow a script, and they bring in a Hollywood actor. The gentleman uh, who helped us last night, his name is Roger. He has a list of celebrities who have read the Christmas story going all the way back, I think, to the 1950s. I'm trying to remember when the park opened. But anyway, John Wayne... Cary Grant, (laughs) I mean some names that are significant, and here's what the reader does. In between all the Christmas songs that we would sing, Silent Night, Hark the Herald Angel, etc., the narrator, who's a Hollywood actor, shares from Luke, Matthew, and Isaiah. They even read the prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, we, Because we had this connection, we were able to get seats right in kind of the, you know, uh, the inner part. And, and it, was, it was really cool. But down Main Street, if you remember where the big tree is, all the way down Main Street, there were thousands and thousands of people who had gathered for this thing. And the gospel went out, incredibly powerful. And I found myself praying, oh, Lord, let, I know your word doesn't come back void, so let the people who are listening to this, you know, come to you. Let there be a revival right here at Disneyland. <laughs> now, I think a lot of you know what's happened to Disney. Disney has gone crazy. But do you know that recently it came out that Disney has lost half of its value because parents are saying no? And they're not going to their woke movies and all this other stuff that they're doing. And Disney (laughs) fired their CEO and replaced them with a former CEO. And Disney at least has acknowledged we're listening because people are voting with their pocketbook. Now I don't know what's gonna happen, and you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. But let me just tell you, last night there was a worship service at Disneyland. (laughs) It, It was pretty amazing. So anyway, we pray that the, the Lord would use it. I know sometimes people can hear the, the old classics and it doesn't do anything. It doesn't move them closer to God. But if one person last night uh, decided, you know what, I need to get back in church or maybe rededicated their life, I'm telling you, it was, it was amazing because the Lord was lifted up word of genealogy, and I I mentioned the family tree of Jesus, and you know, you might think, oh no, a genealogy. (laughs) This is the day I picked to come to church. But this is an exciting good news genealogy, and it is filled with broken, sinful people. Do you know that the line leading to the Messiah is filled with a bunch of people with a checkered past? But what else could happen? (laughs) Because any genealogy on a human level that has Jesus on a human level would be filled with sinners. This is a trustworthy statement. It deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Would you pray with me? Father, as we open your holy word, may your voice speak. Help me to simply just be a vessel for you Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us in this hour. We're excited about the Christmas season, excited about our king coming, and we pray that as we study a genealogy of many fallible, broken people, it will give us a signal that our king came to save the lost. He is a gracious king. He was the friend of tax gatherers, prostitutes, sinners, just like us. So thank you, Father, for the gift of Jesus, the King. I pray that you be glorified as we study your word, we teach it, and we act upon it. In Christ's name, all God's people said, amen. amen. So last week we did one verse, and that was Matthew one one. let Let's do a little summary work as we look at our Bibles together. Matthew opens with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. I mentioned to you that the word genealogy is the root word genesis. This is the genesis, the human genesis of Jesus. Some people believe that Matthew, when he wrote, and by the way, just for a date, Matthew has been put around AD 49. AD 49 is the earliest date of New Testament books. Galatians and James may have happened around 49, 50. These are the earliest books. A little debate in scholarly circles about whether if Mark might be earlier, but the traditional view has been Matthew is the earliest gospel around 49 AD. Now, Matthew, by profession, was a tax collector. And Jesus went up to the tax-collecting booth of Matthew and famously looked him in the eye and said, follow me. And this is what Jesus did with his early disciples. He called them to follow. And he said, I will make you fishers of men. He said to the rich young ruler, follow me and you'll have treasures in heaven. The king called people to follow him. Matthew, the author of our gospel, was one of them. He would have been hated by his contemporaries, despised by people he went to school with. Because he would have been seen as a turncoat to Rome. Basically giving Rome whatever they required of him and then skimming off the top and ripping off people. And Matthew was called to Jesus Christ. And Matthew demonstrates a very in-depth knowledge of Old Testament scripture. And he's gonna bring it forth in this gospel over and over again. This was... A done to fulfill what was written by this prophet or that writer. We'll see that over and over in the Gospel of Matthew. When he says the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ, well, if you were reading this, if it was written in Aramaic originally, of course, it did move over into Greek, and there's a a debate on that. As a Jew, you would read it this way, the book of Genesis. That's how it opens, of Jesus Christ. John says That he was in the beginning with God. That his genesis is obviously divine. And we'll talk about that in a second. But here in his human lineage, this is the genesis of Jesus. Last week, we talked about his name. His name, given the angel was told what to name him, his name was called Yeshua, Jesus in Greek. Yeshua is the Hebrew. His name means Yahweh saves or saviour. If you're taking notes, write that down. His title is Christos in Greek, Messiah in Hebrew. I told you that the Christ literally means the anointed one. They would anoint kings. David was anointed, Solomon was anointed, Saul was anointed as king. Priests were also anointed, and Jesus is the great king priest, but in our context here, we're focusing on his kingship. Jesus, the king. When you see the Christ, you could say the king. Jesus, Savior, that's his name. Christ, he's the king. And then you go down, go down, all the way down to Matthew 1. And another name is given to Jesus. Behold, 23 of chapter one. The virgin shall be with child, a prophecy from the book of Isaiah, and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name, what's your Bible say? Emmanuel, Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Jesus is Savior, King, and God. All in chapter one, so that you can see what he came to do, who he is, and what his nature is. That he is the divine king. Spurgeon wrote a commentary on the book of Matthew, and Spurgeon was making comments on the verses, as commentators will do, And he paused at this point and said these words, marvelous condescension. How could it be that the king of heaven would come down to rescue me? You know, we think about queens that have visited our country and given their well wishes and and there's a lot of regality, you know, regalness and grace to that. We can think of a businessman serving at a soup kitchen for an evening and thinking, wow, that's Uh, an act of humility. We can think of a sports hero, professional athlete going into the inner city and teaching a clinic on sports and trying to maybe visit people in a hospital who are sick, but that is nothing compared to what this is about because the king of heaven condescended on a rescue mission to save us and his destiny was with a cross. This is our king. This is our God. And when Matthew opens the genealogy, the genesis of Jesus on a human level, he calls him the son of David because we're talking about the throne. David was told, one from your body in 2 Samuel 7, from your very loins will sit on the throne forever. That was not fulfilled in Solomon. Solomon had a reign, but it was temporary. It was not fulfilled with the rest of the kings of Judah because they were all temporary. The ultimate fulfillment of the son of David is Jesus. And in fact, in the gospel that we're studying, he will be called that by people, son of David, son of David, have mercy on us. What does this mean? It means that the Messiah had to come through what we call the Davidic line, the line of David, the line of the kings. David was the king after God's own heart. He was God's king. And under David and Solomon, this was the period of time that they had a united monarchy. The glory of the days of Israel were under David and Solomon. After that, the the country split, split, the monarchy split. And they had kings of Israel in the north and kings of Judah down in Jerusalem in the south. It was a divided nation. It was only united under David and Solomon. And then it became divided after the reign of Solomon. And there were kings in Judah and there were kings in Israel. And here's what happened to the nation. The nation was being warned by God, repent, repent, they wouldn't repent. And the northern kingdom, who didn't have one good king, every one of them were evil. The Assyrians came in 722 BC and destroyed the northern area, and they were decimated. Then Judah, who only had a handful of good kings, I count 20 kings of Judah over the stretch of time, Uh, moving from David down through time, and we'll talk about this in a second. Judah was spared a little bit longer, but in the 590s BC, and specifically in 586 BC, a king named Nebuchadnezzar came. This is history. You can look this up in history books. He was the king of Babylon, and he came in and he destroyed Jerusalem, and he leveled Solomon's temple and took people into captivity. We'll talk about that as well. This is what happened Jesus is the son of David. He will ultimately take the throne and restore the glory of the nation, but he's a king for everybody. You can imagine that scene on Main Street as I was telling you at Disneyland. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation seem to show up at that park, and the gospel is for everybody. But there had to be a line through which the Messiah would come and That's why Israel was chosen, ultimately to bring forth the king to bring forth the greater David. He's the son of David, and notice he's the son of Abraham. Abraham is the beginning of the Jewish nation. Abraham was a from a pagan family. Joshua 24 tells us that his parents were pagans, but he was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, you might remember, and God called him to himself, and he left his family, he left his country. And God said, I'll lead you to a place. I'm gonna show you, just walk by faith. And Abraham believed in the Lord, Genesis 15, 6, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And Abraham is held up not only as the father of the nation, but the father of the faithful, the father of faith. This line from Genesis fifteen six moves into the book of Romans and is captured in Galatians that we are saved simply by trusting in the merits of the king. His name is Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we're supposed to do good works, but Abraham was told from your body, From your loins, you're going to have all these descendants and all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Abraham was like, well, Lord, I I just want to inform you on current events. I'm a senior citizen and I don't have any kids. Uh, How's this going to happen? One from your own body will come, I promise you. Well, you know that Abraham and Sarah tried to speed up the plan of God and they got an Egyptian handmaid involved and Ishmael was born and there were issues. And then finally the son of promise came. His name is in verse 2 Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are known as the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. Abraham started it, it started with Abraham, God started it, but through Abraham. And then Isaac was born. Isaac, the Jews would say, Isaac. His name means laughter. And, and he brought laughter and joy. And he was born to people who were 190. I don't know what kind of vitamins they were taking, but but it was obviously a supernatural work of God. The son of promise arrived. But then something happened when he was probably a teenager. God said, Now I want you to take that son, the son that you love, your only son, and I want you to take him to a mountain that I will show you and offer him to me as a burnt offering. Can you imagine? What? But Abraham obeyed and they went out and you know the story. He took his son up there and Isaac began to ask questions like, okay, I see the wood, I see the fire, but where's the sacrifice? You the sacrifice boy, <laughs> right? And, and he had the knife over his son and the angel of the Lord stopped him, Genesis 22, and said, don't, don't take his life. Now I know that you fear me. And a proclamation was made up on Mount Moriah where the Messiah would die for the sins of the world 2,000 years later. The son of promise would die on the cross for us. That son was spared. And he said, because you've obeyed in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And from Isaac came a son named Jacob. Now Jacob was not the firstborn because twins were born in the womb. And they were fighting, remember? In the womb. And the first one to come out was Esau. And he was red. (laughs) They called him Big Red. Uh, That's what his name means. But it was said that the older would serve the younger. And Jacob, the second born, took preeminence by God's choice. And Jacob was renamed to Israel. And Jacob's name means not godly, holy dude. <laughs> he was a conniver. He stole his brother's birthright and blessing. And his brother was about as sharp as a basketball. <laughs> You'll get that in a second if you didn't get it. Because he did it for a bowl of hungry man's stew. Or whatever it was called back in the day. And Jacob connived his way. But then, when he was looking for a wife, he saw this girl named Rachel. And he's like, oh, 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 beat the gates of heaven for her. Uncle Laban, I'll serve you seven years for her. Okay. Seven years went by. It was like nothing. He loved her so much. And on the wedding night, he's with her. She's got a veil on. But it turns out, that old Uncle Laban was also a conniver. He connived the conniver because he snuck in his older daughter named Leah, who wasn't as pretty. (laughs) And Jacob realized, "Whoa, whoa, that's not the girl. And so Uncle Laban said, well, you give me another seven years, I'll give you the one that you want. And Jacob served 14 years for these two women. And let me just tell you, the story of these two women would make a Jerry Springer episode <laughs> probably a good month's worth of episodes. These two ladies fought and for position and one wanted kids and the other one was able to bear kids because she was unloved. And, and then there were handmaids as well. And by the time you work it all out, Jacob had 12 sons through four women. That's the holy family of Israel you're like, what? <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's it. This, these names bring out these truths that God uses broken people because we're all broken. Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And if I recollect correctly, the fourth of them was named Judah. He's in verse two, the very end of the verse. You might ask, why does he come up in the family tree of Jesus? Because Judah is the line of kings. Let's take a look at uh, Genesis 49 in our Bibles. Genesis 49, if you have trouble finding Genesis, we have counseling set up for after the service. So Jacob is at the end of his life, and the Lord has been his shepherd all of his life, despite the twists and turns, the ups and downs, the mistakes that Jacob made. And this is somewhat cultural. The dad, thinking that he was on his deathbed, would call the family in, almost like we would surround a loved one who might be in their last days. And he prophesied over them. This is something much more unique to this context. And here's what happened Jacob summoned 49 1 of Genesis, his sons. He said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. He's going to prophesy. "'Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob. "'Listen to Israel, your father. "'Reuben, you are my firstborn, "'my might and the beginning of my strength, "'preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, "'but uncontrolled as water. "'You shall not have preeminence, notice, "'because you went up to your father's bed, "'then you defiled it, he went up to my couch.' Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. You can see the line of Simeon here, and we can have the order of the sons being born to Leah. Levi is the Levitical line, the line of the priest. Their brothers, their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Skipping down to verse eight, here's the one that we're focusing in on. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Judah does mean praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares, rouse him up. We have learned in our Bibles that Jesus is the lion and the lamb. He's the lion from the tribe of Judah. That's where that imagery comes from. And from this prophecy. And Jacob is prophesying over Judah. And he says something very important. He says, the scepter, that's the king's scepter, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff. Think of kingship here from between his feet. Until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Shiloh is a bit debated, but it means probably tranquility and peace coming from the idea of shalom. But Shiloh also means to the one to whom it belongs. You'll, if you look it up in lexicons, that, that's what you'll primarily see. The one to whom it belongs. The one to whom the scepter belongs will show up. He will be our peace. And when he comes, he will rule and reign Obviously, this is gonna be fulfilled finally in his second coming, but he is the king and he comes from the line of Judah. He has a priesthood, but that priesthood is not from Levi. It's the priesthood of Melchizedek. It's a forever priesthood, but he's from Judah. He's the lion who will rule forever. And way back in Genesis, in fact, in Genesis chapter three, we already have the, the pre uh, talking about Messiah coming. But now in Genesis 49, the specifics of the tribe, David to Judah, Jesus Christ will come from the line of kings and he will receive our praise because he's worthy of it. Now, as you turn back to Matthew 1, let me tell you just a little bit about Judah. Judah when Joseph was thrown in the pit, you remember his brothers were mad at him. They were jealous of him because he had a cool leather jacket that they didn't get, you know, at Christmas. And so they were mad. So he came out to visit his brothers one day and they said, ah, there he is. Let's take his jacket, <laughs> loose translation, and let's kill him. And it was Judah who said at that moment, no, Let's not kill him. What value will that be to us? We'll sell him. So Judah was the one that had the idea of selling Joseph into slavery. What a great brother, huh? Let's make a little money off of it too and we'll send him into slavery. Now, God was behind all of it. God was orchestrating it together for good. In verse three of Matthew one, to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Let me just tell you this story really quickly. So Judah had three sons, and one of them was named Ur. He had a bit of a stuttering problem. Uh, every now and then, he would just go, Ur, Er. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Didn't work at first service, and it didn't work now. <laughs> so Ur marries this Canaanite woman named Tamar. She's a Gentile. It's unusual to have female names and genealogies. It's rare, but not unprecedented. But to have Gentile females in a family tree or a genealogy is extremely rare. It would be, in fact, shocking. When you read genealogy, you usually see the father of this one, the father of that, the father of this one. But in this genealogy, not only are there women, which we do see sometimes in in the Bible, but they are Gentile women. You know that Pharisees used to pray, Lord, thank you this morning that you didn't make me a woman, a Gentile, or a dog. That was a daily prayer of the religious leadership of Israel. And then they read the genealogy of the Messiah, and what do they see? Gentiles, who they thought were dogs, and their women, and Tamar. So here's what happened. Judah, his son Ur, er, was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord took him out. And in that day and age, they had what was called the Leveret Law. The Levirate Law was not about Levi's, It was basically a family um, commitment that if your brother married a girl, let's say you were the younger brother, and he died without having offspring. If you were single, you were supposed to marry her to give offspring to your brother's name. So the second brother, the child of Judah, marries the girl to fulfill the law, but he doesn't fulfill his duty. And God killed him as well. All God's people said, yikes, right? So there's a third son left. He's the youngest. And Judah starts thinking, you know, this girl's bad for business. Two of my kids are dead. I don't know what she's putting in the oatmeal. But but I'm not sure I want to give my youngest to her. So he puts it off and puts it off. So she realizes he's not going to fulfill the duty as the father-in-law. So she took off her uh, widow's garments of mourning and she dressed like a prostitute standing on a street corner. This is the Bible, folks, in the line of Jesus. And Judah came walking by. And he said, hey, and she went, hey. (laughs) That's from the Michael Lance translation. And I'm giving you the Bible. He said, how much? And she said, well, a goat. (laughs) And he said, all right. And he was with her sexually, impregnated her. And he didn't know it was his daughter-in-law. Now, at the time, she said, well, you don't have the goat with you. So how how are you going to guarantee me that I get the goat? So he gave her his seal and his staff and one other thing. And they were together. And he thought she was a prostitute. And we won't even comment on all that stuff right now. And she gets pregnant. So three months go by and Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant and Judah knows that Tamar doesn't have a husband. And so he goes, hey, uh, she, that's wrong. She's being sexual outside of marriage. It's, It's adultery, it's fornication. She's gonna be burned. So they're gonna burn her. But the day came And Tamar sent a message to her father-in-law and said, "Uh, the father of the child is the man to whom these things belong. And she sent the staff and the seal over and he went, (laughs) (laughs) jaw-dropping event because the father-in-law was the daddy. And he said in Genesis 39, she is more righteous than I am. Because I withheld my son from her, so she made something happen through seduction and obviously, you know, <laughs> lies. And Judah becomes the father of these kids in the line of the Messiah. Now, I will say, Judah did mature and grow up some and became a leader. And to Tamar, you have. Uh, Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron, Ram. These names, uh, and to Ram was born Aminadab. This is verse four to Aminadab, Nishan. It appears that from Hezron in verse three, Ram and Aminadab, it covers the 400 years of the Egyptian bondage for Israel. And Ram is where they got the name for that Dodge truck as well, in case you were wondering. (laughs) And to Nashon was Salmon, verse 5. To Salmon was born Boaz by a woman named Rahab. Now here's another Gentile woman in the genealogy of the king. Who is Rahab? Well, Rahab was a prostitute who lived in a place called Jericho. And after Israel left Egypt through the exodus, that generation died off, and the next generation was going to go into the promised land. And the first place that they had to take was Jericho with those huge impenetrable walls and the little French peas at the top, if you're a VeggieTale fan, throwing slushies on people who came near their wall. <laughs> if you haven't seen it before, you should watch it. Because the French peas famously sing, Keep walking, but you won't knock on our wall. Keep walking. But she isn't gonna fall. It's plain to see your brain is very small. To think walking, we'll be knocking down our wall. Thank you. I do parties <laughs> for three easy payments. We can talk later. You're like, no, you'd have to pay me. <laughs> I feel you. So here's this lady named Rahab, and here's what happened. Spies went to spy out the area of Jericho, and uh, the the people of the of the city sniffed it out, and they were looking for these guys. and Rahab hid them, and she said, "Look, I, we've been hearing about the terror of you and your mighty God, and here's all I want. I, I'm going to hide you, but I want you to preserve me and my family when you take this this area." And they agreed, and she hung the scarlet cord, remember? She had a house up on the wall. And she was preserved. And she's in Hebrews chapter 11 as a woman of faith, Rahab the prostitute. Because Jesus Christ is a friend of tax gatherers, prostitutes, and sinners. He came to save the lost. And they were drawn to him because of his grace. They weren't the only people, of course, And so there's a little question among scholars about the timing of Rahab to Boaz. Just something to to remember that Matthew's genealogy is selective. There are some gaps in it, and this is typical of genealogies. You might move, for example, from a great-grandfather to a uh, great-grandson without the middle gaps being filled in. Many genealogies are selective. They're not detailing every single generation and there's reasons for that. Maybe that's what's going on with Rahab because there seems to be about a century gap to make it make sense that Boaz comes from her. Boaz is the famous man in the book of Ruth who was known as the kinsman redeemer. And you remember Naomi and Ruth came back to Bethlehem Their life was a disaster. And they had nothing. They had lost everything. And it was Boaz who ultimately steps in and redeems them, redeems everything, really, uh, to bring these ladies back to where they needed to be. And a child was born uh, through Ruth. And his name was Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse. This is where Matthew is taking us because Jesse, verse 6, was the father of David. And very important for you to mark that David is called David the king because what Matthew is trying to establish is the kingship and the credentials of Jesus Christ. And to David was born Solomon. Here's the third um, mention of a woman. Uh, Some believe that Bathsheba was a Gentile. Others say, no, she was Jewish, but she married a Hittite, which made her a Gentile by, you could say by marriage or legally. And so David was the king and he had a son named Solomon through a wife. Uh, Her name is Bathsheba. Her husband is mentioned here, Uriah. And you guys know this sordid story as well, don't you? David's up on the rooftop one day when kings should have been to war and he's looking And there she is, bathing, and he calls for her. He is intimate with her, and a child is produced. And Bathsheba comes to David and says, I'm pregnant. And David goes and gets Uriah off the battlefield. He's been battling for David and gets him home and tries to get him to sleep with his wife, but he's got too much honor with his comrades on the battlefield. He tries to get him drunk one night to sleep with his wife. He still won't do it. And then he sends his death notice with him. Put him at the front of the battle when it gets hot and heavy and back off so that he may die. And Uriah the Hittite dies. David is a murderer. And David thinks he's done a good job covering it up and now he's gonna marry Bathsheba and nobody will know that the child is from adultery. There's only one problem. Someone did know. It was God. And God sent Nathan the prophet And Nathan the prophet went to David and told him a story. And the story was about two neighbors and a ewe lamb and this rich guy had everything and he took the one little pet of the poor family and killed it and roasted it for his friends. And David was irate. How could this be? That man should die. And Nathan famously said, you are that man. David was broken. Psalm 51 other places you watch David repent and that child dies and David says he can't come to me but one day I will go to him and then he lay with Bathsheba after all the dust settles and Solomon was born Solomon's name means peaceful and Solomon also ruled under a united monarchy with his wisdom known worldwide. But Solomon also blew it, right? He had all these women in his life. His heart turned away from God. You see, do you see what Matthew's doing? We need a better king. We need a king who won't do all these shenanigans. We need a king who the government will rest on his shoulders and he will actually lead the way Things need to be led. We need a different leader. We need a different king. Amen? Amen? I mean, look around the world. Look at leadership, how it has failed us through the centuries. It doesn't matter who it is. Everyone who's ever led, who's human, has feet of clay. Some have been better than others, but we all know. We all know that people have gotten power, and power has corrupted them. But not this one. He will rule and reign in righteousness. He's the king we need. David couldn't do it. Solomon couldn't do it. As glorious as their rules were. And so you have the mention of these ladies. Tamar, verse three. Rahab, verse five. Ruth, verse five. Bathsheba, not named here, but implied. Verse six. Mary, who was an unexpected vehicle through whom the Messiah would come, she being the mother of the Messiah. Ruth was a Moabitess. Uh, Only by God's grace could she be in the genealogy of Jesus. So many things foreshadowing this great kinsman redeemer. That's the first section of the genealogy the second one is in verses 6b through 11 this will be quick these are kings from Judah notice, pick it up at verse 7 to Solomon was born Rehoboam to Rehoboam Abijah to Abijah Asa to Asa was born Jehoshaphat to Jehoshaphat Joram to Joram Uzziah to Uzziah was born Jotham to Jotham Ahaz to Ahaz Hezekiah to Hezekiah was born Manasseh, to Manasseh Amon, to Amon Josiah. Hezekiah was a good king. Josiah was a good king. There were a few that were good, Asa, Jehoshaphat. But that's about it. Some of them were moderate. Most of them, more than half of the kings of Judah, were evil. And to Josiah was born Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. I'm going to show you something. Skip ahead to verse 17. You can see a summary uh, section. So all the generations, the first one is from Abraham to David, are 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon, this is the structure of the genealogy, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations, 14, 14, 14. Now, when scholars look at the genealogy with a critical eye, they say, well, there's not really 14, 14, 14. What's going on here? Some believe that they took the, Matthew took the Hebrew value, there's a number value to every Hebrew letter, of David's name, which equals 14, and used it as a device in that way. Some believe that he used a memory tool, condensing it to 14s, to help Jews remember it, or anybody who would be a student of the Bible, do you know that when someone has, a, a young man has a bar mitzvah, if you've ever been to one, he becomes responsible for himself, a son under the law, if you will. That's what bar mitzvah means. And he has to recite large portions of scripture at his bar mitzvah. The Jews are very serious about uh, remembering scripture. We should be a little bit more serious about it. Amen because your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So maybe a memory tool, but think of this. Three 14s is six sevens. Seven in the Bible is very significant. So think about it this way. You have six sevens making up three fourteens. You have a prophecy in Daniel 9 about the 70 weeks, Remember? If you think about six sevens, that takes you all the way to the Messiah with a final seven missing, because seven sevens makes it complete. And it may be that Matthew's getting at, from the time of the Messiah, there'll be one final seven where all of this uh, will be fulfilled. It's a possibility. We We don't have to be dogmatic on it. Just one thing to point out about Jeconiah, who became a deported king, deported to Babylon because of their sin in Judah. There was a curse pronounced on the line of Jeconiah. In fact, the Bible says no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah, uh, Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-eight 28 through 30. A curse on the line of Jeconiah would have precluded Jesus' right to be the king. But there's a way that we are able to escape that. You know how? Jesus is, does not come from the literal line of Joseph, Joseph is only his legal father. Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the curse does not apply to Jesus. And that's the way we resolve the Jeconiah complex, which you may have run into before. In verse 12, you have, after the deportation to Babylon, seven years in Babylonian captivity to Jeconiah, was born she- Shealtiel. And then you have the mention of Zerubbabel. So Zerubbabel will be a familiar name. These other ones, really not. But the final section taking us to the post-captivity times of Ezra and Nehemiah. What, What happened there? 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And they were released by King Cyrus to go back to the land. And the land was in ruins. Temple was destroyed Do you know how much of the Jewish population returned to Jerusalem once they were free to go? 2%. Led by Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And so they go back and they attempt to rebuild the city with much opposition and the temple. And Zerubbabel was called the prince of Judah, Ezra 1.8. And he was a type of leader. But, but the monarchy really ended at the captivity. There was really no further uh, throne in Judah. It was, it was all done. Israel destroyed the, the uh, last king uh, in captivity. Zerubbabel was born, Abahud, verse 13, to Abihud, Eliakim, to Eliakim, Azor. To Azor was born Zadok, to Zadok, Akim, to Akim, Elud, Eliud. To Eliud was born Eleazar, to Eleazar Matan, and to Matan Jacob. And this is critical because this Jacob is later, and this Jacob was born, to him was born Joseph. What is he called in your Bible? He's the husband of Mary. He's not the father, biological father of Jesus. Jesus is virgin born, which is evidence that he is the Messiah and that he's divine. Joseph is the husband of Mary. When people were asking questions about Jesus' origin, Pilate said, where are you from? Uh, The Magi said, where is he who's born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. People said in his earthly ministry, isn't that Joseph's son? And isn't his mother Mary with us and his siblings? Who is this guy that he's doing these miracles and speaking this way? There are questions about Jesus, just like today on Time Magazine or whatever will come out at Christmas time. Who is Jesus? The historical Jesus, you know, all this stuff. Well, look no farther than your Bible, and we find out who he is. He's the virgin born Emmanuel, Savior, King, God. And Joseph is highlighted in Matthew and gets very little in Luke. Mary's the focus in Luke. That's why many believe that you got Joseph's genealogy and Mary's in Luke. We don't have to be dogmatic on that, but here's the point. We don't know a whole lot about Joseph. We conclude that Joseph was older than Mary and somewhere along the line, maybe fairly early in Jesus' life after he was 12, because we have a record of them looking for him when he was 12. Joseph died. We don't know what happened. But when Jesus shows up and families mentioned from that point forward, no mention of Joseph. And we have to conclude that he probably passed away fairly young. He was the husband of Mary, but Joseph was a righteous man, and we'll learn more about him next time. By whom, see, Jesus came through Mary Of the Holy Spirit was born Jesus, and there you have it. He's the King. Jesus is the Christ. 314s chronicling the family tree of the Messiah coming on a rescue mission. Therefore, the summary all the generations from Abraham to David are 14, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, from the deportation to Babylon to the time of the Christ or the Messiah. 14, Father, thank you that the perfect one came. We can't help but think of sevens here, but that really is secondary to the fact that we have the Savior, the King, who is God. Scholars have called this the hypostatic union. Jesus, fully God and fully man. The King of heaven the King of Kings and Lord of Lords came on a rescue mission. And when the songs of Christmas go up, whether they're Silent Night or Hark the Herald Angels Sing or What Child is This or whatever they may be, Christmas is the center of history. Christmas means the king came. And Father, it was good enough for the angels to celebrate it Good enough for the Bible to recount it and good enough for us to celebrate it. Now we all know the pagan traditions that have moved into the holiday, Lord, but we want to fall in love with the king afresh. We want to realize that we are citizens of the kingdom by the blood of the Messiah. The king spilled his blood on that terrible cross to bring us into the kingdom. The dowry for the bride or the queen in this setting was the precious blood of Christ. Did you keep your head and heart bowed? We're gonna to come to his table in a moment, but before we do that, do you know him as your king? Yes, salvation is by grace through faith. It's paid for. But have you made Jesus your king? so that his rule is over your life. His kingdom is what you pray, pursue, and preach. His kingdom is your priority. Oh, Father, even as I say those words, I look at my own life and know that I have work to do to submit to your lordship, to bow to my King. But all of us collectively, I think I speak for all of us, we want to say thank you. Thank you for coming to rescue us, to live among us, to be born in a nowhere town to a really unknown girl and her husband. But he wasn't the father. You did a supernatural work through Mary, chronicled it in scripture for us, and gave us your Holy Spirit guaranteeing our future redemption. Do you know Christ? What he asks of you is to turn from your sin, turn from the other kings in your life in quotes, and make him your king. Ask him to be both savior and Lord of your life. You might ask, how do I do it? Simply ask him. Say, Jesus, I believe that you are the King." the God-man come from heaven. Thank you for dying on that terrible cross. You grew up to be that man. You shed your blood for me. Thank you, Lord, for purchasing my redemption. Forgive me of my sin. This genealogy gives me hope. (laughs) If you use these people, you can forgive me. Thank you, Lord. Thank him for his grace. If you're a believer, thank him for how gracious he's been to you. Lord, for this precious congregation, whether there are some prodigals here, or I know for many of the saints here, they are fighting the good fight, trying to build the kingdom. Would you strengthen them and grant them refreshment and peace this Christmas season? Give them renewed joy, hope. Thank you, Father, for all the ways that this congregation is impacting this community and beyond. And we just want to give you praise and thanks. In the King, Christ's name we pray, all God's people said, amen.